This episode is supported by Provider Solutions and Development, the holistic career coaching experts with 20 years of experience. Recruitment had to change, so they took away quotas and started listening to clinicians. Find the place you're meant to be. Reach out to psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And Paul, you will notice that sweet, sweet silence. Yeah, I was thinking about interrupting and then just didn't, and it felt great. <laughs> well, on tonight's show, Stuart is not here, but we have a great guest. We're talking about skin and soft tissue infections, as well as different types of bite wounds, both human bites, animal bites. We have a wonderful returning guest, Dr. Bohuma Tatanji. And uh, before we get to that, Paul is going to tell you what we do on this show and remind you about our CME partner. Yeah, sure, Matt. So we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And I'm also here to cheerfully remind you that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all health professionals at curbsiders.bcuhealth.org. It's really easy just to go and sign up and create an account there to do that. Our fantastic conversation this evening is with Dr. Bohuma Kabasin Titanji, MD, MSC, DTMNH, PhD. She is a physician scientist at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. She is a self-proclaimed enthusiast of all things ID, and she loves blogging, cooking, singing jazz music, and interacting with medical professionals around the globe through the Twitterverse where she tweets at Bohuma. So without further ado, spelled correctly, let's do it. Paul, why don't you start us off with a pick of the week? Great. Don't mind if I do. I think I I mentioned this in passing um, during a different episode, but it wasn't a formal pick. So I'm going to recommend the first Law Trilogy, and I'm going to pull a Stuart, who is not here, because I haven't finished the I haven't finished it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Two thirds of the way, I'm most of the way through the second book. Um, The third book I haven't read yet, so it may go south. But I can tell you, it's it's a fantasy series written by the author Joe Abercrombie. It's fairly epic in scope. He writes in a way where the action and the violence is really compelling and sort of um, it moves very briskly, even though it's incredibly long. And the characters are all very sharply defined and they're all kind of um, lovable in their own way. So it's the scope of it's just fantastic. I'm just really enjoying it. It's a really nice distraction that is taking me just months to get through, which is also <laughs> kind of ideal um, considering where we're at right now. So I would highly recommend it so far, a qualified recommendation for the first Law Trilogy uh, by Joe Abercrombie. That sounds great, Paul. I might, I might be checking that out. Uh, whom I'm going to give you a little more time to think. I'm going to recommend Black Science, which is a graphic novel by Rick Remender. This scientist and his team and two of his children get pulled into all these different dimensions. Very, uh, It's just like a really fun adventure comic book. There's nine volumes. It'll, it's a good distraction. And then if you're looking for something more serious, uh, this is a recommendation of some friends of the show. This is We've recommended the book before, Paul, On Becoming a Healer by Saul Wiener, which is just a fantastic book about um, if you're if you really need to reset your mentality about thinking about and caring for patients and um, 
trying to be a good listener when you're in appointments with patients uh, on Becoming a Healer is a great book. And now Saul Wiener and our friend Stefan Kertes have started a podcast where they talk about some of these more humanistic pursuits in medicine. And uh, I've listened to a little bit of it, uh, a couple episodes, and it's it's very well done. They're fantastic to listen to. So check that out or check out the book, whatever sounds better to you. Bahuma, what are you up to these days? What are you reading? What are you recommending to the audience? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back. Um, I, With all the vaccine news, I have been revisiting a uh, one of my favorite books, which is a book by David Oshinsky. It's Polio, the American Story. And it's a history of medicine book that looks back at the polio epidemic in the United States in the 1950s and really tells the story of the vaccine race between Sabin and Salk, who both discovered vaccines for, for polio around the same time, um, and how they competed in, in, in discovering those vaccines and how those vaccines eventually um, got licensed and distributed and effectively ended the polio epidemic at that time. And I just think with everything that's going on, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's a nice time to go back and revisit that time. Yes. And people, please just get your vaccines. I, I know probably our our listeners probably aren't the right people to be preaching to, but my gosh, it's just so soul crushing how many people will not get the flu vaccine. I'm, uh, yeah, just... I've fully transitioned from not asking anymore. It's, just, it's, it's now, I know shared decision-making is a great thing and I, everyone knows I'm a huge proponent of it, but also at the end of the visit, it is, you're now getting your flu shot and have a great day. We'll see you in, in three months or whatever. So it's just, it is not an optional. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, Paul. I thought you meant you weren't, you weren't even making an effort to get people vaccinated. Oh, I was like, not. Paul, that is no. unacceptable. <laughs> no, I'm not, I, no, I, I'm past the days of how about a flu shot? It is now. So we'll see you. Next time after you get your flu shot, it. and that's, yeah. it's not non-negotiable at this I, point. I bet you that that raises your vaccination rate by 25% by not giving them an option. It's made <laughs> a they, difference. There's like a little bit of a social like hurdle that they have to clear to like speak up and be like, wait, I don't want that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. They have to fight with me a little bit, which I, you know, so I like sort of throwing the glove down first. It feels good. For physicians, this hasn't been an easy time in an already challenging profession. If you're looking for a new position or just starting to imagine what might be out there, our sponsor, Provider Solutions and Development, helps people like you find their next job. For 20 years, they've taken a holistic approach to career coaching that starts with listening to what you are looking for in the clinic and outside of it, and then finding the role that fulfills you. With exclusive access to hundreds of open positions across the country, they're ready to guide you toward the job you really want from residency all the way to retirement. Get in touch after this show to start a conversation at psdrecruit.org forward slash curbsiders. Well, we have a fantastic topic tonight and a lot of cases to go through, and we're going to have a lot of iterations on these cases. But first, our first patient is Eri Sipolis. This is a real patient, real name, Paul. I won't uh, accept anything else, so no need to comment. And this is a, a 45-year-old with obesity, hypertension, and they present to the clinic with left forearm redness, and they've been having pain. It's, it's been about three days now. The redness has started to spread down towards both the wrist and up towards the elbow. They're not having fevers or chills, and uh, they don't have any prior history of like rashes. They haven't been on antibiotics recently, and there's no purulence or any real skin breaks. Vitals are okay. So 
Bahuma, how do you think about a patient like this? How do you make the diagnosis of cellulitis? Is it an easy diagnosis to make? And what do you think about this case? I think this is a good um, place to, to start with some definitions, right? And I think the way I define cellulitis is this is redness, pain, and swelling or, uh, and warmth in the skin that is a secondary to introduction of bacteria through a breach in the skin. And whether you're going to call it cellulitis or an erysipela or an abscess, then boils down to the layers of the skin that are actually involved. So I like to think of erysipelas as superficial cellulitis because that infection doesn't extend beyond down to the dermis, whereas in cellulitis, you have a deeper infection that extends down into the dermis, whereas an abscess would just be um, a collection of purulence in the dermis. So that kind of sets the stage as to how I think about skin and soft tissue infections in terms of how I define them. So you just described the case of a patient who is obese and who is presenting with redness, warmth, and pain in an upper extremity. So he has the telltale markers from the definition that I just gave you. And I think in talking to this patient, the things that I want to find out are, has he had recent injury to the skin to try to ad- identify that portal of entry? Is this a limb that um, has some underlying lymphedema? Has he had, say, for instance, radiation to that limb before and scarred his lymphatics and has a limb that is already compromised? And once you take a history and you examine the arm and you, your concern is that there was a breach in the skin that led to bacteria being introduced and that this patient now has cellulitis, then your diagnosis is basically made. Mm-hmm. You also just described um, a scenario where his vitals are normal. And I think that that is, and he doesn't have any purulence, which brings me to the second thing that I think about when I'm approaching a case of uh, potential uh, cellulitis, or I'm thinking about cellulitis. I, I want to see whether the patient has any purulence or if they don't have purulence, because that immediately would make me think of either is this a staphylococcal infection or am I more likely dealing with a streptococcal infection? Staph tends to be what we think about as a pus forming organism. And you would likely more see purulent cellulitis and also see abscesses with staph. Aureus. Whereas if a patient presents with signs and symptoms that are consistent with cellulitis and they do not have purulence, then you start thinking that this might be more likely a streptococcal infection. And this helps guide the choice of, of antibiotic that you're going to treat them with. Now, just because the patient doesn't have any systemic symptoms of inflammation, my first kind of thought on how I would treat them would be to treat them with an oral regimen. I'm thinking this is not a patient that necessarily needs to be hospitalized. But you also did mention that this is an obese patient. So does he have underlying undiagnosed diabetes? And you start worrying about what other underlying factors may buy him an IV course of antibiotics, even if he doesn't have those systemic Mm -hmm. signs of a significant inflammatory response and a potentially um, more dangerous infection. So we'll say Ari uh, actually had some labs recently and their their A1C was 5.8 
5.9%, which is pretty much every patient I check in an internal medicine clinic. <laughs> if they don't have diabetes, uh, it's rare to see a normal A1C. I don't know about you, Paul. They really don't have any systemic signs. It's just this painful extremity. What, what might be like a first choice antibiotic for someone? You think this is a non-purulent strep, probably more of a strep cellulitis. What sort of agent might you choose? It is a great thing that we've cleared out that he, that he doesn't have underlying immunocompromise. A good starting point for an oral option that would cover streptococcal infection is your first generation cephalosporins, which will cover strep and will also cover MSSA. Uh, just putting that out there just to remind everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, you can use clindamycin. And just to remind people of kind of the dosages, when I talk about first-generation cephalosporins, I know immediately uh, the audience thinks about uh, cephalexin. And remember that that is a medication that in an adult would be dosed four times a day, so 500 milligrams every six hours. And patients frequently would run into issues with complying to the treatment with that frequency of dosing. What we frequently forget is that cefadroxil, which is also a first-generation cephalosporin, is dosed every 12 hours, so one gram every 12 hours, and has essentially the same spectrum as your cephalexin, and patients are likely to be more compliant to that. So I tend to choose the one that has a shorter dosing frequency. And clindamycin is also one of those that would have a multiple frequency of dosing and also the additional risk that it really upsets the flora and would increase the risk for secondary infections like C. diff. So really not what I pick with primary intention. Uh, But if you decide to go with clindamycin, the dosing would be 300 milligrams or 400 milligrams every eight hours. And also penicillin would cover. So your ampicillin or your amclavulanic acid would Right. Still and dicloxacillin, I always see listed. I've, I don't know that I've prescribed that one before. I'm not sure if that's like a commonly used in the United States or not, but I, I haven't used it. And not as commonly used as you would uh, see in other places, such as in, in Europe, where you would see more of that than in the United States. So, but if you, it is available. And if you, um, if you prescribe it, the patient should be able to get it. Again, you would run kind of into the dosage frequency issue because amoxicillin and the penicillins in general that are oral tend to require more frequent dosing, especially in adults, mm-hmm. to get the, the doses that you would actually need. And you just mentioned that your patient is on the heavier side. So you kind of have to factor that in because you will be treating this patient for several days and you do want them to comply to the antibiotic regimen. Right. So for this first case... We're going to give Ari, uh, we're, let's say we'll go with five days of cefadroxil. It's one gram twice a day. I like that. I like that regimen. And we're going to treat them for what is five, five days, 10 days. How, how do you decide? Is- if, this is, if this is a case of mild cellulitis, what I always like to stress is whenever you start a patient on an outpatient regimen to treat cellulitis, always make sure that you have a follow-up plan to reassess. Okay. Um, so I would, if it, the case is mild, I would initially write for a five-day uh, prescription, a five to seven-day prescription of an oral antibiotic, but I would make sure that I schedule that patient for a reevaluation to make sure that the cellulitis is resolving. 
Um, and I don't need to extend that course of therapy because sometimes the swelling and the redness and the re- resolution of the infection just takes time. And some patients may need a longer course of therapy. Some patients, by the time they're hitting day five, the limb is completely back to, to normal and they don't need an extension of, of therapy. So definitely have a plan to follow up and reassess. Yeah, I love that. I feel like oftentimes going back to the history um, and even the exam to some extent, it's it's sometimes nebulous for me. So, I, you know, other than the spider bite, notwithstanding um, that, I feel like we've all seen. I, I oftentimes I feel like there's not a specific antecedent injury that's brought up, or maybe I might not even see a specific place for a portal of entry. So, I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind talking me through what your physical exam looks like, other than making sure the vital signs don't show a a, a very sick patient and sort of looking at the area of your theme itself. Is there anything else that you do in terms of physical examination to? either strengthen or rule out the diagnosis? I think when I am doing a physical exam for cellulitis, what I'm focusing on is about, is mainly more the extension of the redness. Because although we did mention that we were opting to treat this patient with an oral regimen and to follow them on an outpatient basis, one of the criteria that could potentially sway me to decide to admit them and actually treat them is how extensive that cellulitis is. So I'm definitely looking to see, is this thing involving the whole arm? Is it just really localized and it's, it's limited to a particular part of, of, of that, that limb? The second thing that I worry about is where is the cellulitis located? Because that can have um, implications for the course and also have implications for other things that would tip you into admitting the patient. I'm specifically thinking about facial cellulitis, where you worry about potential complications um, um, like uh, cavernous sinus thrombosis if it becomes more extensive. And those are patients that you want to be a little bit more aggressive in treating. And I would tilt towards starting with IV antibiotics and watching how they progress and making sure the infection is getting controlled before switching to orals. Also, I think about cellulitis kind of in the perineal and genital area where your gram-negative organisms are likely to also be uh, poking their heads in. And in those situations, I'm also making sure that in tailoring uh, my choice of antibiotics, I'm not only focusing on strep, but I'm making sure that I'm adding something that is going to cover my anaerobes. And specifically for anaerobic coverage with oral agents, I'm thinking clindamycin, I'm thinking metronidazole. So those are the things that I'm really looking for. You said something that is very frequently the case um, in the clinic is you don't usually find the portal of entry. Sometimes the initial injury that led to the introduction of bacteria into the skin is long forgotten by the patient and they can't even tell you that I had that injury. And then they have the cellulitis develop a few days later. It can be something as, as trivial as a small cut um, while prepping food or a light bruise when you, you hit your, your limb on a door or on the floor and you don't notice it, but later on you notice that that area is getting more red and more angry and then you seek, seek medical care at that time. Well, let's let's switch this up a little bit. We we actually had a medical student with us in clinic that day. It was actually a young Paul Williams who takes a fantastic history, and Paul actually drew out of the patient that they actually they actually work as a fish handler. They're working in a fish market, and actually they do get cuts pretty often on their forearms. They didn't have any when we saw them in clinic, 
what is this? What what does this raise? Uh, it, this isn't a board exam, but what 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 th- should we think about for this this case now? Yeah, when you start mentioning buzzwords like you know fish handler, and <laughs> I immediately start thinking about uh, skin infections that are linked to water exposure, and I start thinking about. Uh, bacteria that you're likely to find in either fish or maybe other water organisms such as clams, shellfish, and things like that. Now, when you when you talk about a fishmonger, things that come into mind, uh, bacteria that I start going through that start going through my mind, and things that I wish to cover when I'm choosing my antibiotics, I think about things like Ericea pellithrix. I think about Eremonas. I think about Vibrio that frequently comes up. And um, you, you, those are the, the main things that you think about. And if you're choosing your antibiotics, you want to make sure that in, in choosing it, you're not only covering the organisms that live on the skin, but you're also addressing the exposure that the patient has had mm-hmm. to make sure that you're giving them enough spectrum to cover uh, organisms that may not be covered by your empirical therapy empirical therapy. When we think about things like Vibrio, obviously the first line treatment is doxycycline. But, and again, that is 100 milligrams BID for a mild infection. That should clear it up. And generally in a patient who is immunocompetent, they tend to have very mild Vibrio um, uh, infections. And those are more severe when you have underlying uh, conditions such as uh, liver disease or hemochromatosis, or um, you are immunocompromised in another way. You may be diabetic, you may be a transplant patient. So you really want to dig up those aspects of the history to make the decision as to how seriously and how aggressively you're going to treat this patient. Again, oral therapy versus inpatient observed therapy with close follow-up. I mentioned Eremonas. Um, the first line for that would be penicillins, but also quinolones would, would have spectrum and would also equally uh, cover your Ericea pellithrix. So in choosing my antibiotic, I would be going for something that covers my strep plus something that covers organisms that are related to the exposures that the patient has given me through their history. So we already had this patient, we were going to give them cefadroxil. So with this water exposure, would would you add a quinolone or would you add just doxy and call it a day? Uh, Well, I would probably uh, add both. Okay. To be honest with you, because uh, if you add just a doxy, then you're robustly covering for the Vibrio but you are not exactly optimally covering for Eremonas. You're not at optimally covering for Ericepelothrix. So you are kind of backed into a corner where you have to, to, to broaden a little bit more, at least initially. Mm-hmm. And then you can quickly, again, I mentioned that you have to reassess this patient, have a plan to follow up. Once you follow up on the patient, you can then make a decision based on how they're progressing to decide how what you start peeling back or kind of define a duration so that they're not on super broad spectrum antibiotics for mm-hmm. uh, a long period of time and in the process get other complications that you may not want them to develop. Yeah, so you- I feel like if there's one thing years of board exams and, and studying for these things has taught me that it is physically impossible to step on a crab unless you have underlying liver disease. <laughs> if there's nothing else, that's the one thing I've taken away, I think. 
And I think, I think uh, just to kind of go back to, to why I will be broad, I, I think when people think about liver disease and they think about Vibrio, they think about the person who is coming into your clinic already with a diagnosis of cirrhosis. There are many people out here walking around with undiagnosed cirrhosis. Patients who also have underlying uh, liver dysfunction or early cirrhosis, those patients are also at a higher risk to get a, a, a severe uh, infection from Vibrio. So it's not just your florid cirrhotic patient with right. an acidic belly that you should be worried about. And I worry about missing that and not providing appropriate coverage mm -hmm. than, you know, uh, just and then letting the patient go. And then you find out later on that they get a fulminant necrotizing infection and they end up septic and they present in your ED and die. You know, so right. it's, I would say, go broad when you have the exposures, cover the exposures and have a plan to follow up closely and then deescalate with okay. your follow up and how the patient progresses. So for this patient, for Ari, we'll conclude the case here. So Paul saved Ari's life. We, we actually, instead of just giving cefadroxil, we also gave doxy to cover potential Vibrio and uh, we also gave a fluoroquinolone to cover, what was that agent again that you said? It was Eremonis and Erisipelothrix. Okay. Erisipelothrix. That one is, uh, that's, that doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but <laughs> thank you. So we, we saved Eri's life. And uh, just to remind, so this was, this was a, our first case here. It was non-purulent cellulitis. And it was, we were treating with the agents like the penicillin agents, the uh, early generation cephalosporins, we could also use clindamycin. And Paul, I think, I think there was, uh, Aries, actually, Aries has an uncle named Mort Sipolis, Paul, and uh, he's going to be coming in here. And uh, I think you were going to present that case. Sure. Okay. What we're doing what now? Mort Sipolis is what yeah. we're doing? Where are you, yeah. Yeah. Unless you, <laughs> unless you have another name that you'd like. No, better than Mort Sipolis. I don't even know what I would think of. That's perfect. So we'll, we'll say this is Aries' uncle. Um, he's 63 years old. We'll give him a past medical history significant for reasonably well-controlled diabetes, uh, obesity, maybe even some tobacco use disorder, who's coming in, also has issues with cellulitis, but this time in the lower extremity. And he's actually, he says he's had this before. He's coming to, he said this is the third time he's had a similar infection like this and he usually gets a, an outpatient course of antibiotics. It clears up. He's fine for a couple of months and then it comes back. He doesn't ever really remember banging his leg against anything. He doesn't really remember any sort of antecedent problems at all, but he just keeps having these recurrent, um, non-purulent cellulitis infection. So I'm wondering how for this particular patient, if that changes your approach in terms of either diagnosis or management. Yeah. Um, the thing with the patients who <clears throat> develop uh, cellulitis multiple times is th these tend to be patients who already have underlying predisposing factors um, that put them at a higher risk of having recurrence of cellulitis. And when I think about the underlying factors, I'm thinking about venous stasis um, disease, patients who are uh, quite obese, uh, patients that may have um, lymphatic um, disease and tend to have chronic swelling of their limbs. These are patients that would tend to have recurrences of their infection. When they present with an acute episode of cellulitis, you did mention that this patient is diabetic. When it is acute and they're coming in with that red, warm, swollen, uh, tender limb and 
Again, we're talking about one limb. We're not talking about both limbs being Wait, affected. Wait, are you, are you saying time. that bilateral cellulitis doesn't <laughs> exist? <laughs> because there's always uh, the random case report that makes sure you can never say something doesn't exist in medicine. I would say it's exceedingly rare. Um, just in case someone then forwards uh, a case report of uh, proven bilateral cellulitis after the episode airs. And just to say, you know, your guest got it wrong. So it's exceedingly rare. And if you see cellulitis in both limbs, that should prompt you to really consider differentials other than an infectious etiology. Now, going back to this patient who's been having recurrences of cellulitis in a limb that is already predisposed to um, infection, be it through stasis or through lymphatic disease, that particular patient, when they present with an acute infection, I am going to treat them with antibiotics. Again, if it's a non-purulent, I'm mainly thinking strep. If it's purulent, then I'm thinking staph aureus. So, and then I would select my antibiotic accordingly. When you treat that acute infection and it resolves, the next approach is thinking about how you prevent recurrence or at least space out the episodes of recurrence. Now, previously, uh, the approach has been for patients who are having very frequent re recurrences was to try suppressive or prophylactic antibiotics to try to, to uh, space out those episodes. And that approach worked. But whenever you give antibiotics for prophylaxis, you're always bringing with that the increase of driving antimicrobial drug resistance. There are non-antimicrobial strategies that have now been shown to be effective in reducing the recurrence of uh, cellulitis in patients who are predisposed to recurrences. And a clinical trial was just recently published early in the summer, looking at compression and elevation as a method of reducing those frequencies. And that trial was actually discontinued early because in the non-antimicrobial arm of the study, the patients were doing better and had fewer recurrences. So this is actually pretty practice changing. I think one of the biggest challenges that we run into when we tell patients, you know, you need to compress, you need to elevate, you need to really prevent that uh, stasis and the swelling, chronic swelling of the limbs, patients do not necessarily comply with wearing compression stockings. Imagine in the heat of summer in Atlanta, having to wear those compression stockings for long enough to actually draw benefit. So the patients need a lot of motivation. But now that we know it works, I think it's important to emphasize to the patients that this works. And, you know, this is something that has been proven to be even more effective than antibiotics. And you get to do it without the added bonus of C. diff diarrhea. Yeah. That comes full circle back. We did an episode on wound care and talking about venous stasis and the, and the wounds people get. And really, unless you decongest them and and get that get that swelling off, it it really can't heal. And I think it's probably a similar mechanism where it just kind of takes the pressure off the area and allows allows some of the inflammation to go down and just prevents prevents those maybe small wounds from being there that the infection can get in. But I think. The other point about this this case you mentioned the bilateral cellulitis there was this was back in 2018 a JAMA dermatology article just looking at there's a, a pretty high rate of misdiagnosis of cellulitis especially lower extremity cellulitis and 
uh, commonly it's stasis dermatitis or some other kind of inflammatory condition or rash or contact dermatitis that is that is happening. So uh, I'm always skeptical when I get the call, you know, to a patient being admitted with bilateral cellulitis and, you know, it's circumferential, bilateral and symmetrical. It's, it's, it's very suspicious that it's not really yeah. that. I agree. I agree with you. And I really encourage, um, you know, the audience to think about asking dermatology to come take a look early on before you start dousing a patient with quote unquote, bilateral cellulitis with antibiotics, because they would really help you uh, tease out those other differential diagnoses that is that are more likely to be responsible for that. Or if your derm consultant is busy, I like to say infectious diseases is the poor man's dermatologist. <laughs> so you can always call us. We're happy to help. Everyone loves the infectious diseases team, though. I, I think that's invariably they are they are the backbone of the of the hospital. So Mort, Paul, I think we, I think Mort was, was happy to, uh, to learn that potentially he can prevent this recurrent cellulitis and maybe we should go on to the next case. So Paul, do you want to, uh, read this case number two? Yeah, no, happy to, um, excellent name. This is Sam Anthony, <laughs> AKA Mr. SA. Uh, he is a 52 year old gentleman with a past history of diabetes on insulin. He has CKD three B and COPD who's coming to us with a left lower extremity wound that has some purulent discharge and a large area of surrounding erythema on the anterior shin. No fevers, no chills. And so I, I guess now that we've changed things, that we have some purulence, we have some drainage and some surrounding cellulitis, it sounds like. I wonder if you wouldn't talk us through your approach to this patient and how it differs from someone who does not have apparent purulence on examination. Yeah. Um, you've just uh, described what immediately screams to me as, uh, staph aureus, because that is what we usually go think about when we see purulence. So in, in, in this particular sort of scenario, what you're trying to do is make sure that your antibiotic choice covers the organism that is, is the most likely. And when you think purulence, you think staph aureus. I think the important thing here is in this case to try to identify if besides MSSA, uh, as your initial uh, suspect bacteria causing this infection, does this patient have risk factors for MRSA? Because you would that would that would dictate kind of um, the choice of antibiotics you you go to, especially if you're thinking, uh, okay, he has just a mild case. This is a wound that's draining purulence, but he doesn't seem acutely ill. I think I can manage him outpatient and uh, have close follow up. What are those oral agents that would specifically cover MRSA? Um, so you have to make sure that you're selecting antibiotics such as clindamycin, uh, trimsulfa, doxycycline. Those are the oral agents that do have spectrum against MRSA. You also have linezolid, but that tends to be restricted to ID uh, based on uh, the facility that you are in. Uh, but if the patient has, you know, a pretty severe infection and they're diabetic and you you still think that you trust them enough that you might want to give them a trial of outside hospital therapy, then that is a potential legitimate reason to maybe consult your friendly ID doc and ask for that linezolid and then follow up the patient in 48 hours. Just kind of giving people options for what is available out there as oral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that would cover your your MRSA. You did mention that this patient has underlying CKD. 
So with that, that comes some degree of um, concern about the fact that he's not your typical immunocompetent patient. And I'm also looking at, because he has purulence, is he forming abscess? Is that uh, cellulitis over a bony prominence? Is this someone who would need additional imaging to kind of define how deep or how superficial that infection goes? Just kind of other things that I think through as I make a decision on how I would approach the patient and how I would treat them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you you mentioned the you mentioned the imaging which which is is bringing me to think about this study that made waves in the past year or two where they were talking about looking at unnecessary imaging and blood cultures let let's say we just got a feeling mr mr sa is not really taking great care of himself at home we're worried that if we send him home he's not going to reliably follow up and we think there's a little bit more of a high risk situation here so we're going to admit him for antibiotics if the vitals are otherwise okay, what would push you to get blood cultures or imaging on him? Um, and this is this is just over the middle of his uh, shin on his lower extremity. Yeah, things that would, would push me to get imaging, definitely in patients who are immunocompromised, whether they have systemic symptoms or not. Mm-hmm. Because uh, immunocompromised would sometimes come with the fact that maybe these patients are not able to mount as robust and inflammatory response yeah. as your immunocompetent uh, patients, they're also more likely to not clear uh, bacterial translocation into the bloodstream and likely to get bacteremic from uh, a skin and soft tissue infection. Other things that make me um, want to image is if the patient has hardware in them. Have they ever had a, a prosthetic? Have they had a knee replacement? Have they had a hip replacement? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want I want to make sure, sorry, not image, I want to make sure I get uh, bacterial cultures on, on those patients. Also, the extent, how extensive is the redness? Again, I keep coming back to the exam and looking at how involved that skin is. Is it is it a really big area of cellulitis? How long have their symptoms been going on for? Because the longer you've had the infection, the more likely that you are going to develop complications from it, such as translocating and developing um, a bloodstream infection. So thinking about immunocompromise, thinking about uh, patients who have prosthetic material in them, also uh, thinking about... Um, Patients with extensive cellulitis, even in the absence of systemic um, symptoms. Another thing that you mentioned was that this particular wound and purulent cellulitis is over bony prominence. So if you have a cellulitis on your chin, on your shin, which is just di- it's there's very little skin mm-hmm. that's separating that from bone itself, you worry about contiguous osteo. And in those patients, I would say definitely you it's I wouldn't fault you for imaging them. Mm. I would be a little bit more proactive because if they have early osteo, actually treating osteo early is your best shot at curing it than catching osteo when it's later and it becomes a different beast um, on its own. So that's kind of how I think about it and how I guide um, patients in whom I'm a little bit more aggressive. So this guy, we admit him and we were... You mentioned the oral agents might be trim sulfa, doxy, or clinda. I see this thing about the D test for clinda, this this erythromycin induced resistance. Uh, is that something that you actually see used clinically? I don't know that any places. I guess unless you 
you have like an abscess and you have pus that you're you're sending for culture. I'm not sure how they're running that test. Yeah, not Otherwise. routinely. Really, it's not it's not stuff that we we're, we're doing routinely. Yeah. But if you have a patient who has purulence and you're admitting them and getting blood cultures, and I'm assuming also that if you're admitting them, then you'll also be giving them IV antibiotics and not oral sure. antibiotics. You should definitely try to get a culture of that purulence. Mm-hmm. Um, because then that helps guide your antimicrobial uh, therapy down the line. And by cultures, I'm not saying that you should just culture skin. If you have somebody ha- actually has draining pus, then definitely culture that. Don't go swabbing just cellulitic skin because you're just going to culture whatever is on is on the skin. But if they have an exudate and it's purulent, it's always useful for us to to have that information. If for, for, for you might be able to to just find MSSA and then that way you can take them off the vancomycin that may be messing with their kidney function and actually narrow them to an agent that just covers your MSSA. So right. it's always useful to have uh, microbiologic information. So Sam was admitted. Let's say uh, it, he was admitted. He gets van- IV vancomycin. When do you think about the step down from IV to to oral antibiotics? I know this comes up all the time. I'm really reliant on the physical exam Mm -hmm. and the clinical progression. And I also want to kind of like just, you know, um, alert the listeners to the fact that sometimes cellulitis can be slow to resolve. So we frequently get consulted for patients who've been in the hospital for three days and have been on, you know, vancomycin and people frequently cover for both uh, MRSA, MSSA and strep when they're admitting a patient just to make sure that they're covering all the likely uh, culprits because you think the patient is sick enough to be in hospital. So they give them more broad coverage. So let's say, for instance, this patient might have been on uh, I don't know, maybe Vank and Unison, and they're treating this um, cellulitic uh, limb, and then we get called because it's day three, and it's not improving. When you go and you assess the patients, usually the patient would tell you subjectively that they actually feel better. And you would realize that maybe the primary team is not being quite as, as aggressive about recommending offloading and elevation, which also would shorten the recovery time for patients with cellulitis that you're already treating with the antibiotics. So don't forget to make sure that if you have a patient with cellulitis in the hospital, they have to have two pillows stacked and that limb is elevated and you're making sure that they're fully offloading because that decongestion uh, would help with the resolution of the infection itself. So just kind of little tips and tricks. Now you specifically ask as to when you narrow. It's your physical exam. It's your clinical exam. It's reassessing every day. I find it quite useful the first time I see the patient take out a marker and just mark the region of the cellulitis because it gives you a, a reference point for the next time you see the patient. And it's more objective to actually see if that redness and swelling are um, resolving as opposed to just eyeballing it. And also, I think that in instances when it's not improving, also be a little bit more proactive. Is this now a case where you need to get the surgeons involved? Is there a deeper infection? Do you need to repeat imaging? Do you need to reassess uh, your antimicrobial coverage? So it's the clinical exam. If they're getting better and the redness is coming down, 
and they don't have any systemic symptoms, transition them to oral and complete out a 7 to 10 day course to treat their cellulitis. Mm-hmm. If they're not getting better, be proactive, get other people involved, rethink your antimicrobial coverage and look for deeper pockets of infection. I feel like often in these cases, you don't have a lot of useful um, culture data to work with, e- either from the logistics of the place that you're in or someone forgets to do it or you get something back that doesn't make any sense. Um, so I'm wondering what you de-escalate to. Is there any empiric de-escalation therapy that you tend to go to in these cases? Or is that even a fair question to ask? Well, I think it also um, depends on the host, right? The patient that I'm dealing with. Again, it comes to location of where the cellulitis was, who the patient is, and uh, what I initially started them on. So if let's take, for instance, this is a healthy patient who just had extensive cellulitis that you were worried about and you brought them in. Typically, if they come in, you're going to give them something that's covering both your strep and your staph. Once they get better and you're sending them out, I would say transition them to an oral regimen that covers both. So if you don't think that this patient has risk factors for MRSA, it's okay just transitioning them to a first-generation cephalosporin. So again, cefadroxil, one gram BID to complete out the course. If they have risk factors for being colonized with MRSA, then that would be a first-generation cephalosporin plus one of the oral agents that has MRSA coverage to complete out the course of their therapy. And if this was cellulitis in a part of the body where you worry about anaerobes, uh, again, uh, perineal, uh, perioral uh, uh, cellulitis, then in addition, I would be thinking about adding some anaerobic coverage with like a metronidazole or a clindamycin, knowing full well that clindamycin would be an agent that would cover strep, MSSA, MRSA, and your anaerobes. Right. So- just just for the audience, the MRSA risk factors, and Bahoma, correct me if I'm wrong, be someone with like HIV that's uncontrolled, someone on dialysis, nursing patients who are in long-term care or nursing, nursing home facility, uh, or someone who's like recently been hospitalized or had surgery. I'm not sure if you would add on people who have just recently been on antibiotics for anything. Yeah. And, and the big one that we tend to forget are young, healthy adults who exercise a lot and are in gyms, gyms all the time yeah. and sharing uh, gym equipment and sharing uh, right. bathrooms in, in gyms. They are frequently colonized with MRSA. Army recruits are frequently colonized with, with, with MRSA. So there are populations of healthy people that may have a higher risk of being colonized with MRSA. But yes, I agree with you that... Um, the factors that you just listed are the frequent ones that okay. that we encounter. Well, to, to to close out this case, Sam was actually just we we brought Sam in. Sam was on vancomycin um, for this purulent cellulitis and ended up going out on. Um, we thought it looked really bad. It was pretty extensive. We ended up sending out on both cefadroxil and doxycycline, kind of covering both staph and strep, even though it was a purulent infection. And I don't know whether or not that's something you commonly do. It's I, I find it's hard to because vancomycin covers staph and strep, right? Yes, it does. And uh, do you commonly do you have a favorite step down regimen that you go to, or do you just go to clindamycin? And, and just to and just to clarify, when you see people do vanc and say, for instance, um, 
uh, a first-generation cephalosporin, that's just because first-generations are better for MSSA. Yeah. Because the VANC normally would cover your MRSA and your strep. Right. But we are really adding that first-generation if you really want to have, like, Because VANC is static, MS- and yeah. sometimes you get the levels wrong. <laughs> I like adding a second agent, like a, like a, like a cephalosporin or something, to uh, if just because it seems like the VANC, I just feel like the Vank dose is wrong a lot of the times on the first shot. Uh, no, so. I disagree. The algorithms are flawless. I've never had <laughs> out of bounds Vank trough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just coming back uh, to your to your question, I think with cellulitis and skin and soft tissue infections in general, there's so many possible combinations uh, that people can go to. So I I I tend to have more of an approach of thinking about what it is you want to treat and then picking the antibiotics that sure. would cover those those uh, organisms while taking into consideration the dosing frequency mm-hmm. to make sure that your patient is able to comply and also the secondary ad- adverse effects in terms of how well tolerated the agent you're choosing yeah. actually is. And I, I would just say if you go with that and you choose from some of the options I gave earlier, I would not fault you for picking, I don't know, doxycycline uh, instead of e- trim sulfur or, you know, so I would leave that choice to, to the audience. Know the options, know what you want to treat and, and make your choice. Paul, do you want to bring us into the abscess, the abscess question here? Sure. All right. So I, apparently, are we going to stick with Sam or give him an Uncle Mortimer <laughs> as well? I think Sam also has an Uncle Mort. <laughs> I mean, it just, it only makes sense. So <laughs> Sam's uncle, Mortimer, comes in. This is now Mortimer Anthony. He'll, we'll say he's a 75-year-old patient. He's coming in complaining of a left lower extremity wound. And on examination, you're actually finding an area of fluctuance consistent more with an abscess than just straightforward cellulitis. And he also has this area of erythema um, that looks cellulitic about two centimeters all the way around. From a vital sign standpoint, he's not febrile. He doesn't look toxic at all. He's just annoyed that he has... Um, this apparent infection on his leg. So I'm just wondering if you could talk us through your general approach to abscesses um, in general. Yeah, abscesses are one that I like because I feel like um, drainage, drainage, drainage um, is is such a key thing that you can do. And that's like 90% of your treatment. And I think that um, when I think about abscesses and when I assess an abscess, there are a couple of things that I'm looking at, right? I'm looking at the size of the abscess and the size of the cell- surrounding cellulitis, because that's really what's, again, is going to make the determination as to whether this patient gets antibiotics after that anti- that abscess is drained um, or whether I, I feel comfortable just saying, I drained the abscess, the pus is gone. And that's done. And a good rule of thumb is abscesses that have a diameter of less than two centimeters. Generally, it's fine to just incise and drain. And again, I would say give your patient guidance with regards to if they see worsening cellulitis in the days after you incise and drain the abscess or if they have worsening pain and also schedule like a follow up to make sure that it's resolving if you're going to go down the no antibiotic route. But small abscesses less than two centimeters, incision, drainage, that should do it. In a patient that's healthy, that doesn't have any underlying conditions, you really don't need to add antibiotics. There's always a caveat. If the patient is diabetic or if they have any other underlying immunocompromising condition, I tend to worry that they may not be able 
by themselves to do the mop up that is left mm -hmm. behind after you drain. And in that case, I would give a short course of antibiotics to do that mop up no longer than five days. And just really just making sure that there's nothing left behind and you're clearing up any infection that, that is left. In an abscess that is greater than two centimeters, uh, we're talking now about a large abscess, definitely in size, drain, and I will do antibiotics. Uh, just because of the size of the, the abscess, there's likelihood that the involvement of the surrounding cellulitis is extensive enough that this is unlikely to resolve on its own. And another frequent question that we get is when do you pack? When don't you pack? I would say, you know, packing doesn't add anything. Like it doesn't really help with uh, resolving uh, the abscess in itself. And the reason why people pack is usually because they feel they've left something behind and they don't want the tract to close and pus to reaccumulate. So if if you feel that the abscess is big enough and there is still surrounding enduration that is likely to lead to continued collection of pus and purulence in the days that are coming, you do want to keep that tract open so that mm. it can continue to drain. But if it's a small abscess and you've incised it and you squeezed everything out, Really, you don't need to pack it because remember, every time you introduce a foreign body, it's literally a raw wound and you're shoving in a piece of foreign material and telling the patient, go home and come back in two days. It's uncomfortable. It increases the pain of the patient. And those are things that you want to factor in when you're treating your patients. We're trying to help them here and not not harm them. So that is really my approach when I get asked about packing or not packing, antibiotics or not, an no antibiotics with abscesses. And you're typically using the doxy, trimsulfa or clinda as anti-MRSA yes. agents. Absolutely. If I'm, if I'm treating them as an outpatient, if they just came in yeah. through the ED or to your office and you incised the abscess and drained it, then I'm just giving them an oral agent that covers okay. uh, uh, MRSA and covers um, MSSA. And do you send the culture as well from the abscess? Yes. If you have, if it's a small abscess, and I think that the drainage and the incision is enough, I'm unlikely to send any cultures because I'm not giving them any antibiotics. I see. But if they have a large abscess and you're giving them antibiotics and you're saying, take this for seven to 10 days to make sure we really treat this cellulitis, having microbiology is always helpful because mm -hmm. it would help you tailor uh, what you're treating. And don't forget, if that abscess is in the perineal region, remember to cover for anaerobes. Remember, remember to cover for anaerobes. With Clinda, you are good covering for staph uh, aureus and anaerobes. But if you go, for instance, with doxycycline or trimsulf, and then you have to think about adding, say, for instance, a metronidazole to make sure that you have that anaerobic coverage in areas of the body where the anaerobes are likely to be lurking. So it's like groin or... Uh, groin areas, uh, axillary areas, okay. perioral, perineal, genitalia. Okay. Uh, if you have abscesses in those locations, think about covering for anaerobes. And then the, I guess the last question about abscesses and MRSA that always comes up as well is the decolonization piece. And what what sort of information do you give to people? I, I was surprised when I was reading about this, that they were talking about uh, decolonizing the whole family. If, uh, if, if somebody has it, that's not something that I had heard of before. I was a little surprised at that. Uh, is that yeah, something that uh, you do clinically? 
Decolonization is an interesting one. Um, and I would say uh, approaches would differ depending on who you ask. <laughs> Personally, I am not a big fan of decolonization because it, first of all, it's not something that you do once and you're done with it. The patient is just going to get colonized again. Um, it can provide a temporary respite for that recurrent uh, staph infection, but it's by no means a perfect fix for, for curing recurrent uh, uh, staph infections. Trials have actually looked at this approach. And just to kind of give you a flavor of um, what sort of decolonization you have to do to to, to be effective, there was this really interesting trial uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I believe it was two years ago, where they did a decolonization regimen on discharge. And the regimen actually involved uh, five days of bathing twice with uh, chlorhexidine, using chlorhexidine uh, mouthwash, and also using uh, mupirocin ointment for five days every month for six consecutive months. Now, imagine if you were to prescribe that to, to your patient. The adherence in the trial was about 66%. But that is a clinical trial yeah. where you have people nagging you and making sure that, you know, you're doing what is right. In the real world setting, it's just very difficult for patients to, to adhere to. In patients who are really having issues with recurrent um, staph uh, aureus abscesses, I discuss it with them and I offer it as something that they might want to try. Uh, for outpatient decolonization regimens, you have uh, a wide range of options. You can do diluted bleach baths, and it's usually a teaspoon of bleach to 13 gallons of water as a, a rule of thumb. And it's asking the patient to, to bathe with that um, for, is it... Uh, a week or a month just to kind of get the bacteria to reduce the burden. And you're doing that with topical mupirocin in their nostrils as well. But also telling them that that might space out the abscesses, but they would eventually come back. Some patients try it and it lasts for the time it lasts. And it eventually, they, they get the skin and, and soft tissue infections again. But it's worth having the conversation with, with your patient. And if they want to try it, why not? Well... I think we have some more cases, and now we're going to move on to talking about bites. Paul, did you want to read us the next case? Sure, be happy to. So we're going to be talking about JCVD. He is a grizzled 60-year-old former kickboxer. He's seeing you in the office two days after he was in a bar fight. His right hand is swollen and somewhat tender. He's got small cuts on his third and fourth knuckles where he struck another patron in the mouth. <laughs> um, he's denying fevers and chills. As a kickboxer, he was he's fairly punch-happy, apparently. Um, no redness or purulent drainage on examination, uh, but does have these, these small lacerations. His vitals are stable. He's afibrile. He's not having any chills at all. So in terms of this patient who's had his fist in another patron's filthy mouth, <laughs> which, which should be our considerations in terms of antimicrobial therapy um, or actually any, any other management? Yeah, I think uh, you just mentioned one of the mechanisms of injury for human bites that we see most frequently, and also one of the, the mechanisms of injury that I am most fearful of. Because that particular mechanism of injury with punching with the fist fight and punching someone in the mouth and getting that injury on your knuckles often goes unnoticed in the moment. And these patients tend to present when they already have pretty significant and extensive hand infections. So with that particular mechanism of injury, that's a patient, first of all, that I'm going to admit into the hospital to, to get um uh, IV antibiotic therapy, 
And I'm going to also get hand surgery involved very early on in their management and get imaging and get um, blood cultures. With that being said, your antimicrobial coverage for human bites, your thinking about covering the anaerobic organisms that are present in the human mouth. And uh, the biggest culprit is echinella for, for human bites. And what would cover that would generally be um, a combination of amoxicillin and clavulanic acid. If you're admitting the patient, that would be your amsulbactam. Uh, Piptazo will do it as well, um, just to kind of give you uh, some options. In patients who have penicillin allergies, you can use combinations. So I would go with a quinolone like ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin in combination, again, to cover the anaerobes with a clinda or with a metronidazole. I was surprised to see moxifloxacin apparently can be monotherapy for this. Yes, but I would not recommend it just because there's not enough data out there for using moxifloxacin for this indication. It's very attractive. It's out there. Uh, because it's a single agent and can and people can think, you know, this is perfect. But I just don't think that there's enough experience yeah. with using it broadly. It will cover. It has the spectrum. It would cover yeah. your anaerobes. It would cover uh, the, the organisms. But I think we have more experience with right. using the agents that I've mentioned before. And we're, we're talking about a, a dominant dominant hand here uh, in a in a Price, this guy's a, he's a fighter. I mean, we want to, we want to get him back out there. What? Okay. Tetanus prophylaxis for these patients. Do you, you think about that as well? I, I always, I, I feel like the ER must deal with that more as an internist. It's like one of those things I have to, I, I don't have to think about tetanus, uh, like for wounds that often. Yeah. I think it's always, you raise a good point because, uh, frequently the people kind of lapse on their, uh, uh, tetanus boosters. And when people present with uh, bite wounds, that's definitely something that you think about. If the patient has not had a booster, a TD boobs booster in uh, more than five years, you definitely want to give them um, that booster dose. I wouldn't go as far as doing both uh, vaccination and toxoid administration unless it was a really soiled gnarly looking wound. If it's just a small wound and they've been vaccinated before and just not had a booster, and then you just um, clean the wound, give them their antibiotics, and then uh, give them the vaccine. Well, so, we, so we'll bring JCVD in, knock this down with something like either a Piptazo, Ampsilbactam, and then switch over to one of the oral regimens, which you said might be like something like a quinolone plus metronidazole or clindamycin. Yeah. And We'll send him on his way, but uh, I did before we send him. I did want to ask about preemptive antibiotic because I, I think I'm not sure I was clear on that specific point. Oh yeah, point. So I think we were talking about a scenario where where his hand was sort of gnarly. You're seeing him a relatively late presentation with active infection that you want to make you want to take very very seriously because you don't want to compromise a hand. But what about someone who comes in, like say next day after the fight, like yeah, doc, I punched this guy in the mouth, and you just have it comes up when you're you know checking his cholesterol or what have you. Is this someone that you would give preemptive antibi antimicrobial therapy to with, just because the mouth is... With human human bites, I definitely will. Even if it's just for a short course, the wound is clean. I make sure that it's cleaned and um, I would definitely give them at least a short course of therapy, again, with a plan to reevaluate. Mm. Now, if you're talking about other bite wounds, um, I think the most common from domestic pets will be dog bite wounds and cat bite wounds. And... 
when you look at kind of the proportion of dog bites that get infected compared to, to cat bites, if it's a, a scratch by a little chihuahua and really it's looking clean and uh, the patient doesn't have any uh, cellulitis and, you know, it's not that impressive, I think that it's okay to not empirically mm-hmm. treat them with, with antibiotics. Cat bites tend to be deeper and get infected in up to 50% of cases. So if it's a cat bite, I'm more inclined to empirically give you a course of, of, uh, of treatment. And again, the good thing about bite wounds is that the same empiric therapy that we've used for human bites would apply to your cat bites and to your uh, dog bites. Well, funny you mentioned cat bites because our <laughs> our next our next case here. Um, I'm not sure where this name ca- came from, but uh, Paul Nelson is a 45 year old man. He lives alone with a clouder of cats. I believe that means several cats. And he comes into the office one day after Werther's, his butterscotch colored kitten, bit him on the face when <laughs> when he was kissing her goodnight. Paul, way too much fun writing this case. So uh, Paul now has been bitten, <laughs> bitten on the face. <laughs> this is for you such joy, <laughs> you weird sadist. <laughs> so Paul has been bitten on the face by his, his lovely kitten, Werther's. And uh, what do we need to do for Paul for this, for this cat bite here? It doesn't look infected at this point, but he, he has a bite on the face. Yeah. Um, face, when I think about bites on the face, I also think about, you know, the cosmetic... Uh, implications of that. And um, you also, because you mentioned a couple of things that I'm factoring into this case, this is a cat bite. So I'm going to say likely to be a deep (laughs) bite. Even if it looks clean, it's likely that there's uh, some pastorella that's been introduced into that wound. So that is a patient that definitely after cleaning and assessing the wound, even if it looks clean, it's on the face. I'm not going to run the risk of this guy getting a nasty, gnarly uh, cellulitis in a couple of days. I am going to empirically treat that wound as though it was infected. Other issues that come up when people talk about sort of wounds on the face or bite wounds is whether you close the wound or not, right? If this is a gnarly gash Mm -hmm. on the face, the cosmetic implication means that you really want to approximate the wound and close it to make sure that it heals and doesn't leave a nasty scar. But there is a risk in closing um, wounds from bites because, again, you are locking in, you have the risk of locking in or closing in bacteria that has been inoculated and that wound is not breathing and is more likely to fester infection that has been uh, introduced. So I would be, I'm usually very proactive in these cases in kind of getting my wound specialists, my my plastics uh, folks to weigh in and actually assess, especially if it's in a part of the body where you think that closure might be something that may give a better cosmetic effect Mm -hmm. because then we can have a conversation. What type of closure? Is it just approximation and with close follow-up and we treat with antibiotics and then time the closure with the surgical team? Those are all conversations that you can only have if you get them involved Mm -hmm. early on. And it's just something that I want to put out there. Yeah. Yeah. I had never, this doesn't come up as much in primary care, but I thought it was super interesting to think about that aspect of like some of these more, these bite wounds are dirty. So you, you just can't just like close them up. Even if there's like a big flap, sometimes you might, 
you might do something else first and let it heal by secondary intention. Just for verisimilitude, my cat is losing. <laughs> I know. In this case. I, I've never, I've, the audience is going to think we're we're throwing in those cat sound effects. Those are actual cat sound effects. I don't I don't think uh, Oliver liked my uh, my case about Paul, <laughs> and especially since I made up a cat that Paul does not does not have. Yeah, he's probably worried about Werther's actually. Oh, and and kind of just to um, close out. Uh, an important aspect because we because we've been talking about cats. If this patient is going home, I would do something like a moxiclav just because I'm covering the spectrum that um, the cat may represent in terms of the the pathogens that cats carry. And and the same for panallergic is is the coverage pretty much the same as you would do in a human bite where you would do you could do like a a you quinolone. Could do Cipro. Yes, exactly. Quinolone Cipro plus like metro. Or yeah. okay. Yeah. And the moxie is an option, but I tend to stay away from it because it's just not frequently used enough. Yeah. Just to reiterate that point. Okay. Yeah. And I, th- I, I like how you talked about the dog bite versus cat bite thing. Cause that, that's always one that, that comes up too, where if it's dog bite and it doesn't look infected yet, can you just watch it or do you have to give antibiotics? Um, and my understanding with the cats is just their, the way their teeth are, they tend to puncture much deeper and just get, get the infection in there. Okay. Well, I mean, we've covered a lot here. Uh, I think we can, we can save saying that just, uh, people, if people have cirrhosis and they get bit by a dog, you have to take that much more serious. Um, I don't think we have time to get, to get all into that, make, make Paul a a dog owner with cirrhosis. Um, so Paul, do you think we're missing chinchilla attacks? (laughs) Do we miss, did we miss anything? I mean, we've been through a heroic amount of, of cases and content. No, no, I think we've got it all. I think we can now treat virtually any skin problem between this and prior episodes. I feel good about it. Yeah. That is ambitious, but I'll take it. (laughs) Bahuma, do you want to give the audience, like, what are some key, maybe two or three key takeaways that if they forget, if they remember nothing else, what should they remember from this episode? I would say you're going to see a lot of cellulitis um, throughout, regardless of what type of practice you're in. Um, Get comfortable with the decision-making of how you choose your antibiotics. And I specifically want the audience to remember that think about the site of the infection, think about the host that has the infection, that is the underlying conditions, whether this is a patient that you'd be comfortable treating outpatient or inpatient. Think think about the mechanism of injury and think about the patient's exposures. And when you choose your antibiotics, make sure that you're choosing a regimen that the patient is actually able to adhere to. So think about the frequency of dosing and also think about the collateral damage that you can do with antibiotics that may have uh, a higher likelihood of upsetting the gut and causing additional infections. So if you think, if you keep your thought process simple and uh, methodical, then you can't go wrong with treating cellulitis. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. 
A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And finally, a special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on our website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're doubtless hearing behind us. Uh, and that theme music was placed there by the amazing Claire Morgan of Not Early, who edits our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.